Today's uh, session, uh, uh, this, this particular session is uh, entitled Geopolitics and the Changing Patterns of Multilateralism. We are uh, uh, hoping we can get a louder miking on the table uh, because my voice is, does not carry. Um, I'm very pleased to, to have a, quite an array of speakers, distinguished indeed speakers. Uh, I'm going to just introduce them uh, now and then uh, I will... Uh, the, the biographies in your pamphlet will provide the details, uh, so I will introduce them uh, as, as they, uh, in advance of their, their speech, the, uh, as I said, the content and details of their background is better captured in print than it is uh, uh, by me, uh, but all of that is uh, uh, nonetheless uh, heartfelt in terms of my own uh, uh, introductions for them. Can I start with uh, uh, Ambassador Vishwanathan? from uh, the Observer uh, Research Foundation of India, who will be speaking on regional organizations and changing patterns of multilateralism. Is this working? Yeah. Can you hear me? Thank you, Chris. First of all, I would like to thank uh, CAF and LSE for inviting me for this very important conference. Uh, it's a great occasion to meet with old friends. Chris is one of them and also make new ones. I really feel honored that uh, I have been invited to interact with uh, so many eminent academicians and uh, practitioners. Now, regional organization and changing patterns of multilateralism. Since uh, each one is given only 10 minutes, uh, I had sent a paper, but I won't read it. I will just touch upon uh, four aspects in my paper. Of course, one is regionalism. The second is multilateralism. Then I'll talk about how globalization has changed both these. And also I'll touch upon new concepts like uh, plurilateralism and uh, multi-stakeholderism. Now in today's globalized and interdependent world, problems have become more complex and broad-based. The burning issues of the day are such that they impact everyone, and no nation can honestly say that it's not affected by it. Be it terrorism, food or energy security, water stress, environment, trade liberalization, cyberspace, drug and human trafficking, or peace and security. Yet, no nation by itself can tackle effectively these issues. These require regional or global solutions, and hence the importance of regionalism and multilateralism. Regionalism is loosely defined as any policy designed to reduce trade barriers between a subset of countries regardless of whether those countries are actually contiguous or close to each other. By this definition, we could include even groups like BRICS and IPSA. But traditional regional organizations like EU, African Union, ASEAN, and SARC have territorial contiguity as the main pillar. There are various arguments for regionalization, of course, some of which are sufficient size and economies of scale, viable economic unit, credibility of the entity, collective bargaining on the international scene, resource management like water and ecology, peace dividend, and avoidance of conflicts and overall development. Regionalization can be due to economic factors or political or strategic factors. Normally, one feeds into the other, but it's not always so. When one talks of regionalization, the best example that comes to mind is the EU which started off as EEC and evolved. This was a great and successful experiment 
which ended conflicts in Europe, but let's remember only after two world wars. The EU model cannot be blindly applied to other regions. One of the principal re reasons for the success of EEC and later EU was the presence of a common external enemy, that was the USSR, which encouraged integration. Other factors are leveraging of the US security protection, cultural unity, and robust institutions. These factors may not prevail in other regions. India's own experience with regional integration has not been very good. There was very little regional integration in South Asia in the first four decades after India's independence. When Bangladesh proposed the concept of SARC, that is the South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation in 1985, India was actually skeptical for fear of being encircled by small countries with the usual grievances against a big neighbor. It is also true that in the first two decades after independence, India concentrated more on global multilateral aspect of diplomacy. Indian officials were busy drafting ambitious resolutions in Geneva and New York, along with other third world countries, but did little to promote trade with each other in South Asia. There were two reasons for this. One, the Cold War dynamics and India's desire to create a vibrant non-aligned forum. And second was any active Indian initiative for integration in South, Af in South Asia would be viewed with suspicion by smaller neighbors and certainly opposed by Pakistan. In the last decade, however, cooperation within SARC has expanded, particularly on the connectivity front. The stumbling block for SARC to, uh, SARC to achieve its true potential is Pakistan's opposition to any regional initiative for fear of dominance by India. Hence, at the last SARC summit in Kathmandu in November last year, the Indian Prime Minister, along with some others, have decided to go ahead with specific sub-regional initiatives which will benefit two or three countries. One such group is India-Nepal-Bangladesh, the other is India-Bangladesh-Bhutan, and the third is India-Sri-Lanka-Maldives. Now, what is multilateralism? There are various definitions, but the simplest one is, it is multiple countries working together on a given issue. Both regionalism and multilateralism can succeed only if the members feel that they are useful for a where national interests can be promoted. In other words, everyone should feel that there is something in it for them. Because of this, the core principle of multilateralism is to avoid an all-or-nothing position. The number of multilateral organizations have increased considerably in the last five decades. But how effective they have been in tackling global issues is debatable. India has been a strong, staunch supporter of multilateralism ever since it became independent. It was not only idealism, but it had practical and geopolitical considerations. Three of them come to mind. One, in a world dominated by powerful countries, multilateralism provides an option for protecting and projecting national interests. Second, multilateral rule-based organizations and regimes would limit, though not fully constrain, the resort to unilateralism, which is the hallmark of great power behavior. And three, multilateral financial and technological assistance has less political price to pay than bilateral assistance. There's a growing feeling among many that multilateralism is becoming weaker. This weakness has also been accentuated by the process of globalization, which I'll refer to shortly. 
One of the main paradoxes, as two scholars, Thakur and Van Langenho, observe is that the policy authority for tackling global problems still belong to the states, while the source of the problems and potential solutions are situated in transnational, regional, and global levels. When rule-based multilateral frameworks are found wanting, countries resort to other mechanisms. <coughs> the recent example has been the proliferation of free trade arrangements between countries and regions, which was a direct consequence of the failure of WTO to arrive at a multilateral framework. Now to globalization. Like in so many other sectors, in the last two decades, globalization has deeply affected both regionalism and multilateralism. Even though there have been globalization processes in the past, the most recent one has been of a qualitatively different variety. Globalization has been defined as a vision of borderless world organized mainly through market principle. It is also said that globalization is the strengthening of the fun functional dimension of development and weakening the territorial dimension of development. The last 100 years have been witnessed to three di distinct periods of or strong waves of globalization. The first was 50 years or so that preceded the First World War. The second was in the 1950s and 60s. And the third period was in the 1990s, soon after the end of the Cold War. In all the three periods, the world output, trade, investments grew. There were innovations in technology and communications, and the inequalities between and within countries also grew phenomenally. What is different about the current wave of globalization is the deep penetration of the functional market into national economies. The world has never been so interdependent in the past. One problem of the new globalization is that whereas capital, goods and services are global, labor is not. In fact, the honorable uh, former president of Chile referred to this in his keynote address, that labor, there is no movement of labor, but there is a movement of everything else. The effect of all this has been to change the contours of both regionalism and multilateralism, as they were described in the past. Some scholars have even coined phrases like regionalism 2.0 and multilateralism 2.0. And they have identified the differences. I won't go into that. Probably we can discuss it during the Q&A. Multilateralism 2.0 has many new features. Two major developments are currently transforming the multilateral system. One is the trend towards multipolarity, that is a rising number of new players, and the other is the way the new players are changing the nature of the multipolar world. In the metaphor of multilateralism 2.0, state sovereignty is being diluted in significant ways. Regional organizations, subnational entities, and supranational institutions are playing increasing roles. For example, since 1974, <coughs> EU has been an observer in the UNGA. On 3rd May 2011, UNGA upgraded EU status by giving it speaking rights. Now, will this lead to opening the doors for other regional and sub-regional organizations? And if it happens, then what happens to the sacred principle of one country, one vote? So far, only sovereign states can be full members of the UN. But let's remember the Chapter 8 of the UN Charter mentions possibilities of cooperation with regional organizations. Now, does regionalism help multilateralism? 
డాక్టర్ జగదీష్ భగవతి ఆస్త క్వశ్చన్ ఇన్ నైన్టీన్ నైన్టీ వన్ ఆర్ రీజనల్ ఆర్గనైజేషన్స్ బిల్డింగ్ బ్లాక్స్ ఆర్ స్టంబ్లింగ్ బ్లాక్స్ ఫర్ మల్టీలాటరలిజం ఇన్ అన్ ఐడియల్ వరల్డ్ ఇట్ వుడ్ బి బెటర్ ఇఫ్ నేషన్స్ జాయిన్ టుగెదర్ ఇన్ టు రీజన్స్ అండ్ రీజన్స్ దెన్ ఫార్మ్ మల్టీలాటరల్ ఆర్గనైజేషన్స్ బట్ అన్ఫార్చునేట్లీ ద వర్ల్డ్ ఇస్ నాట్ ఐడియల్ in many regions there are internal contradictions and individual states prefer to play both the regional and the multilateral cards simultaneously on the positive side regional organizations enable participating countries to move closer to have free trade in goods and services and thus have better understanding regional organizations act as laboratories for multilateral negotiations regionalism also forces countries to make to take a more relaxed view on sovereignty thus regional organizations act as halfway houses on the road to multilateralism but there are also negative aspects regionalism usually results in inward looking discriminatory and protectionist tendencies in the field of trade regionalism has, al- has often led to trade diversion rather than trade creation a strictly regional approach may also stand in the way of a global and multilateral vision however having said that when regional organizations speak with one voice they have influenced multilateral decisions one example is the unsc resolution 1973 on libya which had explicit reference to the views of the au arab league and the oic i have one minute uh, the problem arises when uh, regions do not speak with one voice and such cases have been more the norm than the exception now on plurilateralism we have seen a whole bunch of alphabet soups like brics ipsa basic g20 you can include all the alphabets and we have so many organizations i won't go into that in detail except to say that they all do serve a special purpose of addressing some specific issues it is also a reflection of the fact that rule based multilateral system is not functioning as effectively as it should now there is a new concept of multi stakeholderism this is a direct consequence of multilateral multilateralism 2.0 uh here non governmental uh, agencies like private sector ngos civil societies they participate in the conferences along with government representatives and this was tried out in the cyber conference net mondial in brazil in 2014 now how effectively this will work one will have to see In conclusion I would like to flag the most fundamental aspects of regionalism and multilateralism and ask the question of whether in today's context these are being addressed both regionalism and multilateralism are not ends in themselves they are vehicles to address issues of global governance the rules and institutions for dealing with such global governance was created 70 years ago under a different set of circumstances The question arises that after the process of liberalization and the rise of many emergent powers whether it's time to reassess the global governance structures Unfortunately when this debate happens it is reduced to a very simplistic west versus the rest kind of argument It's very unfortunate because in today's world the reality is the west needs the rest and the rest needs the west because it is a globalized world The question of burden sharing by emerging powers also becomes relevant here but can there be meaningful burden sharing without a commensurate leadership sharing This is the question that many emerging powers ask 
I would end by saying that ideally, global institution should have three balances. Balance of representation in order to be legitimate, balance of power between that group, and balance of responsibilities. I think I'll end there and wait for your questions. Thank you very much. <clears throat> thank, thank you. As, uh, for, um, as I said before, the, the, I will just give brief introductions. Please consult the, the brochure for uh, details. Professor Zhongying Pang. Professor Pang is, uh, uh, teaches at Rinmin University in China and will speak to China and the liberal international order. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for. Uh, thank you for inviting me to this uh, important event. And uh, uh, let me let me talk about uh, China, and uh, not necessarily talking about China's relationship with uh, with so-called Western liberal order, but I would like to uh, talk about uh, uh, interactions and uh, maybe future interactions between China and the existing world order. The, the former. Chile president this morning mentioned Henry Kissinger's book World Order, titled World Order and uh, uh, let me let me uh, 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 let me make the following points. The first the, um, the first is about the Chinese uh, international position or the uh, Chinese place in the existing world order and uh, uh, Chinese leaders and so many Chinese scholars still think China is part, part of the global south. China is a part of uh, the developing, developing world. And, uh, and, but so many people in the West, on, in England, on, in Europe, and the Dant and the China is still part of the global south. But from my uh, uh, personal point of view, China is, is really a part of the global south. And uh, um, the second about China I would like to say is uh, ch- today's China is in between the old world order and the so-called the emerging world or the new world order. So and uh, China is really matters. And uh, um, um, uh, Gerard Siegel and from the I double S and in in uh, two thousand uh, uh, nineteen ninety nine and published an article about uh, Does China Matter at the Foreign Affairs magazine in, in New York. And you know this topic. And uh, uh, 10 years later, and 15 years later today, and uh, we know and uh, China really matters. And, uh, uh, um, and the big reason is uh, it's not only uh, that China is uh, the second largest economy, and China is, is, occupies a permanent member at the UN Security Council. China is the largest trading partner and for Africa, for Latin America. And just last week, last week in Beijing, and China hosted the first China Latin America, China CELAC, CELAC Forum. And at least 30, 30 Latin American countries, ministers and presidents and visited Beijing to attend the forum, China Latin America forum. So China, China is so important; it's indispensable. But I, I think and and the the, the importance of China is 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 and, and because because and the China reshape 
reshapes the world order. And, and, and China, on the one hand, China is in the, is with the old world order. On the other hand, and China plays a significant role in shaping the new world order. So the world, and the world, and uh, we are now facing, and uh, um, the Chinese role, we are now uh, watching, and, uh, and uh, with so many uncertainties, and so many, so, ma- so many unknown things. And even our Chinese inside China, we, we know very little about uh, the next, how China influences the future world. This is my first. The second, let me, let me talk about, uh, let me talk about and, uh, the Chinese foreign policy in transition, or Chinese foreign policy in great transformation. And everybody knows, and today's China others a new political leadership, President Xi Jinping, and uh, and uh, Premier Li Keqiang, and, the, and 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 also the anti-corruption chief and Wang Qishan, Wang Qishan, you know such a, such a political figures now and dealing with China's big domestic challenges, anti-corruption, anti-pollution. This is the top two challenges: corruption and uh, pollution. Uh, also, the Chinese foreign policy and the Chinese diplomacy are also in transition, in a big transition. But the question is, uh, and whether Chinese foreign policy, we still know little about uh, the direction of Chinese foreign policy and uh, diplomacy, is diplomacy. And uh, 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 two years ago, I spoke at the CIPLI, and you can, you can Google my, my keynote speech at the CIPLI. The CIPLI uh, covers all Hu Jintao's 10 years, uh, zero to, to 12, Hu Jintao's 10 years Chinese foreign policy. I gave a keynote, speaker, uh, uh, keynote speech, and uh, where I, I talk about the conclusion is and the Chinese foreign policy and with so many uncertainties. Today, I still think that the Chinese foreign policies with so many uncertainties. And uh, uh, on the one hand, and China continues the relationship with the liberal order, with the United States, with Europe. And uh, just uh, la- last month, Chinese Vice Premier Wang Yang, Wang Yang spoke in Chicago, uh, and, uh, and, and he, he said that the United States is guiding the world, still guiding the world. China accepts the United States leader, global leadership. And China has no intention, no capability to challenge the existing order and America's global leadership. So Vice Premier Wang Yao reassures the United States. And the Chinese new leadership has tried to continue to reassure the United States. Obama was in Beijing last November and to attend the APEC summit. And Xi Jinping invited him to um, to the Chinese Communist Party's headquarters, Zhongnanhai, to have an informal summit. Uh, so, and uh, the framework with the United States is uh, the so-called new type of uh, new type of uh, great power-based relationship. And the Chinese tra- translation is a new type of great country-based relationship. Uh, so, and uh, on the one hand, China continues to uh, continues to uh, uh, construct relationship with with the liberal order, and uh, China explores and so many things, um, and uh, to promote a global liberal order, and uh, and China organized FTA Asia Pacific, 
and, uh, and, and also China organized uh, uh, the other FTA-based relationship with, with, with countries, with, with South Korea, with Australia side. The treaty is also already signed. And China and uh, now negotiating tre- uh, investment treaty with the United States and, and with the European Union. And uh, also and, uh, China uh, explores uh, and, uh, other things to strengthen so-called global institutions. Last year, in Brisbane, Australia, and the Chinese President Xi Jinping attended the G20 summit, and uh, his team agrees G20 communique last year. The third part of the G20 communique last year in Brisbane is about strengthening the global institutions, and China supports supports the uh, the reform of the IMF and other international financial institutions, the WTO, and the global climate change, and uh, the post. Uh, 20, uh, 2015 uh, development, development Millennium Development Goals, other United Nations, and, and so many other global institutions. Um, but at the same time, China explores alternatives, the alternatives. So such things, you know, and uh, so many people outside China now downed China's tension, intentions and motivations. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, so many comments Conferences and the think China challenges the existing global order and the orchestrated, organized land by the United States and, uh, and the European Union. Uh, and, but, uh, but from the Chinese point of view and the China, Chinese political leaders and so many Chinese scholars, including me, still think and China does not, really does not challenge the existing order. But China has to reform and change its foreign policy. The foreign policy means and just after the end of the Cold War, China conducted the so-called low-profile low profile foreign policy. And after the, the, um, the, um, the end of Mao Zedong era, China conducted the opening up foreign policy. And, uh, uh, and since 19... 49, Mao Zedong years and Deng Xiaoping years, China conducted a series of North and North foreign policy. Means and China never takes the lead, and China never seeks hegemony, regional one and uh, global one. And China, and even China, and, uh, and never, and, and, and China conducts the, the nuclear foreign policy, nuclear doctrine, means and uh, no first use nuclear, nu- nuclear weapons. And, and China and conduct international aid foreign policy means and China attaches no political conditions to the developing countries. And there are so many, so many no's and so many no's and no interference and into so-called domestic affairs, internal affairs, and never takes the lead. And, but now, and, 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 and China at the same time China continue to not challenge the existing order, but China and seeking leadership, regional leadership, and global leadership. And uh, uh, there, are, there are a lot of examples, and uh, uh, the AIIB back, the BRICS grouping, and, uh, and, and so many, so many, so many things. Uh, so my next point is about China and the, um, the interactions and the corporations and uh, and, 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 uh, and uh, consultations with existing order. 
let me just use uh, the, the following five C's to um, describe. The first, first C is cooperation, corporate, China cooperates with others. The second thing is a change. China presses the existing international financial institutions to reform at the, the IMF and others, including ADB at the regional level, Asia Development Bank, and must be reformed <coughs> to uh, reflect the international, the change, the power shift, and, uh, and to include uh, and, uh, the others, uh, particularly China and India and other new emerging countries. The third is cre- uh, create, creation. And uh, uh, um, um, the fourth is contribution. And, and, and China not only contributed to, in, uh, 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 contributed to infrastructure, and, uh, but also contributed to solutions. And Xi Jinping last year in Berlin, Germany, to talk about that China contributed to global solutions, to global problems. This is the first time the Chinese leaders talk about the global governance. And the global government at China and tries to contribute to global solutions. And also, and China and, uh, and plays a role in Africa peace and security and the changes in no interference principle. The final C is a consultation. It's a consultation. And China tries to conduct the cost of uh, world orders and the cost of uh, regional organizations, the cost of international uh, uh, groupings. Uh, let me conclude. And uh, in the past many years, you, and everybody knows China opposed, China criticized existing order organized by the West, organized by the United States. And this is the first stage. And uh, uh, later on, and in the era of reform and opening up, China changed. And we, cha- we, we changed our attitudes and policies toward existing order. And China joined and uh, participated in almost all international governmental uh, institutions. And uh, um, this is the second stage. Now, and China enters the new stage. The new stage and uh, and means and, uh, and 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 China is no longer and, uh, uh, satisfied with existing of Chinese place in existing orders. China wants to have a, a larger role in such institutes. A very good example is the G20, and the next year, 16, China will host the G20. China is now a member of the Trioka with Turkey with Australia. Because this year, Turkey hosting the G20 summit. The G20 um, signifies, represents a new world order, maybe an emerging world order. And this is a compromise between the old and, uh, and the old. China, next year, the Chinese presidency uh, will, lead, and, uh, will lead to uh, a Chinese version, maybe a Chinese version of the new world order. Thank you so much. I would like to take your questions about China. Thanks. Thank you very much. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> if I can call upon Professor Didier Opreti Badin, former foreign minister of Uruguay, who will speak to Latin American views on multilateralism. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, yo voy a hablar sobre 
Latinoamérica y el multilateralismo. Por lo tanto, lo voy a hacer en español. Por cuanto creo que una visión latinoamericana en este ámbito bilingüe puede ser hecha en español. En primer lugar, eh, quiero agradecer la invitación eh, con la que he sido distinguido, tanto a la CAF, el Banco de Desarrollo de Latinoamérica, nuestro amigo Enrique García, y por cierto, a esta prestigiosa universidad. El tiempo disponible, según me ha dicho aquí el, el jefe de la mesa, que es el que todo lo ordena, eh, es limitado. Por lo tanto, voy a tratar de ser lo más sintético posible. Y voy a arrancar con una pregunta. ¿Existe una visión latinoamericana sobre el multilateralismo? ¿Existe? ¿O lo que hay son miradas? Porque una cosa es mirar hechos o circunstancias o decisiones o resoluciones y otra cosa es tener una visión a general vision, es a different thing. Por lo tanto, yo voy a tratar de construir con la paciencia de ustedes una mirada para luego ver si es posible o no llegar a establecer la posibilidad futura de una visión, desde una perspectiva. En primer lugar, cabe decir que América Latina está absolutamente envuelta es very involved en el multilateralismo, absolutamente. Primero porque es miembro fundador de las Naciones Unidas, la gran mayoría de sus países. Segundo porque sus países son miembros de los 160 países de la OMC. Tercero porque treinta y tantos países de la región de América Latina son miembros de la OEA. Tenemos aquí hoy... Nos honramos con la presencia del de doctor Insulza, secretario general de la OEA, al que lo saludo especialmente. Tuvimos hace unos momentos la presencia estelar de Ricardo Lago, que ha sido el presidente de Chile durante seis años y que toda vez que ha intervenido en cuestiones relacionadas al conjunto de América Latina, ha expresado una voz verdaderamente latinoamericana. Por lo tanto, tengo precedentes o antecedentes de la región que me permitirían eh, comenzar con una afirmación preliminar. América Latina cree en el multilateralismo. Pero vayamos un poco más hacia, hacia, hacia el presente. Miremosnos hoy, miremosnos hacia adentro y miremosnos en el mundo exterior. Cuando nos miramos hacia adentro, vemos que hemos desarrollado mecanismos de integración. Tenemos varios mecanismos de integración, quizá demasiados mecanismos de integración. Tenemos, hay como su, suelo decir en mis clases, hay inflación institucional. Hay inflación institucional. Es decir, tenemos eh, en lo económico, comercial fundamentalmente, eh, la ALADI, eh, en el caso ocurrente de los países que somos miembros del MERCOSUR, el MERCOSUR, los países que son miembros de la Comunidad Andina, la CAN, eh, los países de América del Sur, la UNASUR, los países de América del Sur y otros que no son de América del Sur, más Caribe, la CELAE, 
y así seguimos. Creamos cada vez que un organismo no nos satisface, en lugar de mejorarlo, creamos otro. Es más sencillo ponerse de acuerdo en crear algo que no se sabe bien para qué es, que ponerse a hacer funcionar aquello que sí se sabe para qué fue creado. Tenemos la OEA, que es una organización de Estados americanos que tiene, por supuesto, una historia larga y como toda persona física o jurídica con una historia larga, tiene activos y pasivos. Pero realmente es la única organización hemisférica de naturaleza política y es la única organización en cuyo ámbito hay tratados, por ejemplo, en materia de derechos humanos. ¿Y quién puede negar la importancia del desarrollo del sistema democrático y de los derechos humanos en la región? ¿Quién puede negar que ello ha sido un paso adelante en el multilateralismo y en el contenido del multilateralismo? No solo en la forma multilateral, que todos sabemos de lo que hablamos cuando hablamos de los tratados de Viena y hablamos de todo lo que ello implica. Por lo tanto, el punto de arranque, el punto de partida, es que hay una importante dosis y por momentos una sobredosis de multilateralismo en la región. El segundo punto es que hay que ver cómo funciona ese multilateralismo. Veámoslo por un momento. En Naciones Unidas. En Naciones Unidas, el grupo latinoamericano caribe, GRULAC, es un grupo para acordar posiciones en materia de elección de candidatos, básicamente. Y esto lo digo desde la experiencia de la presidencia de la Asamblea durante un año. Y nada menos que en el periodo en que sucedieron los episodios de Kosovo. Configurar una reunión del grupo latinoamericano Caribe para tomar una posición en el tema Kosovo fue absolutamente imposible. Y hay otras razones también que explican esta, eh, esta yo diría, inoperancia. Una ausencia de relaciones, prácticamente de hecho, entre la Asamblea General de las Naciones Unidas y el Consejo de Seguridad. Y en el medio, el secretario general, que tiene que jugar más con el Consejo, que tiene facultades coercitivas que no tiene la Asamblea. Por lo tanto, en Naciones Unidas podríamos decir que como grupo no tenemos mayor gravitación, Latinoamérica me refiero. Pero sí también tenemos que decir que su interés por la organización lo registra el hecho de estar presentando candidatos para el Consejo de Seguridad, lo cual de alguna manera demuestra que aún aceptando esa configuración asimétrica del Consejo de Seguridad, naciones, la, la, los países o países de América Latina quieren seguir participando. ¿Qué está pasando? Salimos del escenario del sistema político global de Naciones Unidas y nos vamos al sistema político global en materia de reglas de comercio. Y vamos a la OMC con su inacabable ronda de Doha y unas perspectivas donde hay un arranque del bilateralismo competitivo con el multilateralismo. Si hay un lugar en que la competencia bilateral entra a jugar fuertemente respecto del multilateralismo es en materia de reglas de comercio, en materia de acuerdos comerciales, en materia de solución de conflictos. Y no lo digo yo, que soy un profesor de Derecho Internacional, lo dicen los expertos del comercio internacional más elocuentes y más persuasivos de América Latina, incluido algunos de Brasil, que señalan 
entre otras cosas, que este bilateralismo es la respuesta natural, es la legítima defensa a frente a la inacción del globalismo de la Organización Mundial de Comercio en cuanto a la universalidad de sus reglas. Por lo tanto, ahí hay un principio de bilateralismo del que debemos preocuparnos, o debe preocuparse una mirada cuidadosa, eh, debe tomarlo en cuenta. Veamos qué está pasando a su vez con los mecanismos de integración. Y tomemos fundamentalmente aquel del que yo puedo de alguna forma brindar un testimonio, otra de las razones por las que hablo en español, porque para ser testigo de un hecho hay que hablar en el idioma de origen. Y, y, y quiero en esto ser muy claro, yo soy mercosureño o mercosurista o mercosuriano, como quieran llamarle. Los tres rótulos me pueden caber en cuanto al contenido, pero también tengo un alto grado de excepción de decepción, de escepticismo, de falta de confianza, de méfiance en el Mercosur. Creado en el 91, perfeccionado en el 94, eh, con un protocolo de solución de controversias en el 2003, con un parlamento que es parlamento, exclusivamente de parlare, no... No, no es un cuerpo de decisiones, no tomó decisiones, por ejemplo, en el conflicto de las pasteras, de las fábricas de celulosa, no tomó decisiones en el cierre de los puentes, no tomó decisiones verdaderamente imperativas en el caso de Paraguay, es decir, un parlamento. Entonces, ese multilateralismo mercosureño no se está aplicando al objeto mismo de su creación, que fue ampliar el comercio, ir de la zona de libre comercio, pasar por la unión aduanera y llegar al mercado común. ¿Eh? Tres etapas, triple steps. No, nos hemos quedado prácticamente en el segundo y a medias. En el segundo, estamos en el segundo escalón, la, el arancel externo común y a medias porque tenemos tantas excepciones a ese arancel que prácticamente no podemos decir que haya un arancel externo común. Pero además, ¿qué está pasando? Como no resolvemos los problemas internos del MERCOSUR porque sus órganos no funcionan adecuadamente, ¿qué hacemos? ¿Lo achicamos? ¿Lo concentramos? No, lo ampliamos. Y tenemos nuevo socio, un socio que es Venezuela, que no ha firmado todavía, por ejemplo, Acuerdos fundamentales como reglas de origen. En un organismo de integración comercial, tener reglas de origen es una pregunta de examen que yo hago en facultad y si alguien me dice que no tiene mayor importancia, vuelve dentro de seis meses. Es decir, reglas de origen es la clave para un organismo de integración. El acceso al mercado con reglas de origen. Bueno, esas reglas de origen no las tenemos todavía con este nuevo socio. Por otro lado, hay permanentes trabas al comercio arancelarias y no arancelarias. Y hay además el abandono progresivo de la idea central que le diera origen al Mercosur, que fue la ampliación del mercado, extender el mercado, crear un mercado regional amplio, que facilitara el comercio interregional para desde él, mejorando la competitividad, lanzarse al mundo exterior con mejores posibilidades de inserción. 
Ese era el ABC de su creación. Hoy, en cambio, se ha ido convirtiendo en un mecanismo de reserva de mercado y en un mecanismo de restricciones al comercio exterior por la vía de trabas que tienen que ver con limitaciones proteccionistas, con cuotas, con fórmulas que no van en el sentido correcto de bajar el arancel externo común, sino que van en el sentido proteccionista. Y el sentido proteccionista es opuesto, es diopositi, a libre comercio. Por lo tanto, el MERCOSUR, multilateral en su conformación, colegiado en su membresía, orgánicamente organizado con miembros con estados asimétricos, dos economías mayores, Brasil y Argentina, dos menores, Paraguay y Uruguay, y una quinta economía que todavía no está integrada plenamente. Entonces, puedo decir aquí en conciencia, sí, ya terminó, eh, puedo decir que es el problema terrible, viajar 18 horas de avión, venir y hablar 12 minutos, es difícil. Eh, es decir, eh, puedo afirmar entonces con convicción que América Latina cree en el multilateralismo, que lo practica el multilateralismo, que está verdaderamente, yo diría, eh, sujeta a una idea central o para América Latina el multilateralismo y el bilateralismo y el unilateralismo son coyunturales. Yo me inclino a pensar de que en este momento son coyunturales y ya termino para su tranquilidad. Aquí quiero decir lo siguiente, los tiempos en política exterior, eh, yo he sido siete años ministro de Relaciones Exteriores y algo por osmosis he aprendido, los tiempos de política exterior no son los tiempos de los anuncios, no son los tiempos del momento, son tiempos de mayor distancia. Con la distancia que dan estos hechos y estas circunstancias, quizá ustedes puedan tener hoy una visión. Yo todavía la estoy construyendo. Muchas gracias. Western Hemisphere Affairs. Please, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, first and foremost, wanted to thank CAF and LSE for the opportunity to speak with you all today. Uh, I'm going to try to hold to the allotted time here. Uh, I didn't travel as long as the 18 hours. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to start with two very preliminary matters, get to the heart of my assignment, and then, perhaps depending on the perspectives in the room, offer a provocation at the end. Uh, one is on perspective. Uh, the, is, you know, for the part, from where I am, the, there's a saying that um, where you sit is where you stand. Uh, and on these issues, I think that is particularly true. Uh, so a bit of a background about myself. I come at this not from an academic background. Uh, and I always have to underline that when I come to academic settings. Uh, I come to this as a policy and political practitioner uh, on national security and international affairs in the United States. Uh, and I used both policy and, and politics because I've worked in both, uh, and there's a lot of overlap uh, in every system, um, but ours is quite obvious where those overlaps occur. And then, obviously, I I'm going to focus on, in talking about emerging powers and talking about the challenges, primarily uh, Western Hemisphere focus. And one last thing that's autobiographical that I think informs this as well, uh, I grew up with multilateralism. Uh, multilateralism was dinner conversation at my house. 
Uh, the reason I was born in the United States and not in Colombia, as my last name would suggest, was my, because my father spent 35 years working at the Organization of American States. Uh, he came to work for two years. He went to Washington to work two years on the Alliance for Progress, and he never went home. Uh, so, uh, so multilateralism uh, is very much a, a part of who I am and a part of my life's experiences. On the definitions, I'm going to join a couple of the previous speakers, including President Lagos, to push a little on the definitions that we're using today. I've never been a big fan of the Goldman Sachs definition of emerging powers, uh, otherwise known as the BRICS. I think that misses the point. Uh, it misses, and particularly from a U.S. perspective, uh, you have to talk about countries like Mexico, like Indonesia, like Turkey, like South Korea, and others. Uh, and, and, and I'll use Mexico as the reason why. There has been no more important democratic and economic emergence for the United States in the last 20 years than Mexico's, um, save potentially one, which is China's in terms of its global emergence. But Mexico's emergence and its the continuing evolution of that emergence in terms of a day-in, day-out impact on the United States and both a challenge and an opportunity for the United States, you cannot compare Mexico. So the global south, um, in my world, begins at least uh, no further south than the southern side of the Rio Grande. also want to challenge the notion that we should just be talking about the challenges posed by emerging powers for the United States, because I think there are also real opportunities. And in the challenges conversation, I think it's important to talk about not just challenges for the United States, but also for the emerging powers themselves, how they interact with one another, and implicit in my topic, the interaction with the United States. And then my, my provocation, to highlight my provocation, uh, that for emerging powers in the dynamic with the United States, uh, it gets no better than the current political reality in the United States. And I'll get back to that. Talk about some of the challenges of emerging powers for the United States. I think it's very important to recognize that multipolarity, or even worse, apolarity, as President Lagos suggested to us earlier this morning, runs deeply counter to the American psyche, uh, particularly among political and policy elites. It is a very disturbing notion for the political and policy elite of the United States that we live in either an apolar or even a multipolar world. Most of them in polite company won't say what I just said. I have the benefit of being outside of government right now to be able to say the sort of thing I just said. Um, there is one very important exception that I will get to later on my provocation. And it, at a certain level, makes sense. Think about the background, the academic, the professional, the, the, the social, the cultural experiences of the political and policy elite in the United States, again, with one really important exception. Uh, you'll probably figure out who I'm talking about. Most of these folks grew up in a Cold World paradigm. Right? When I worked in the White House at the kind of senior levels of the National Security Council, my counterparts were all at least a decade older than me. Right? And by being a decade older than me, right, I, the Berlin Wall fell when I was a freshman in college, my first year at university. So, but all of my counterparts, that was 10 years after they had left college, or six years after they had left college if they were only 10 years older than me. Most of them were significantly older than that. So their formative experience is very much in the transatlantic Cold War construct. That's what they're comfortable with. That's what they know. 
Uh, they've had very little firsthand or professional experience with emerging powers. There are exceptions to this. It, again, it's generational in large measure. So you have an emerging generational coastal elite in the United States that has more firsthand experience, either has familial ties to these emerging powers, um, or has had experiential experiences that is not yet reflected in the body politic at its highest levels. Um, in the economic world, in the commercial world, you have more connectivity to the emerging economies um, and the realities, the cultural and political realities of those countries than you do among political and policy elites. So that in and of itself is a challenge for the United States, is that its decision makers are not particularly well prepared to deal with this new reality. A very small vignette of an example. Uh, I was responsible for organizing uh, President Calde the, the U.S. side of President Calderón of Mexico's state visit to the United States. Uh, and as part of that process, there's an, the, all the departments and agencies that have something to do with the U.S.-Mexico relationship were getting together, were, were convened at the White House for a meeting of the National Security Council. And the Deputy National Security Council, the process of doing that, I, I, as the person principally in charge of this, would send a proposed list of participants for that meeting for approval from my boss uh, and from my immediate boss. My immediate boss calls me in my office, and my immediate boss looks at me and goes, Restrepo, I've run 300 of these meetings of the U.S. interagency process, and, and we've dealt with this topic and that topic and that topic, and I look at the list of people you've just proposed that attend this meeting, and I have one question for you. Who are these people? Right. This is a very senior U.S. government official, a very well-prepared individual um, in charge, largely, of running the interagency process on international issues. And the, the difference between the U.S.-Mexico relationship is such to every other relationship we have that literally these were people that this individual had no idea who they were. Uh, underscores a challenge. There is, in, in, in the body politic of that, that it, this kind of resistance to this change is, manifests itself primarily in the, in the debate about American exceptionalism um, and what that means and whether it exists and whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. Um, that's the core of the, that debate. Even among those who accept that there's this, there is this new reality, there is a certain level of frustration, of concern, that goes to one of the challenges, the primary challenges for the emerging powers themselves, which is there's this multipolar world. It's not clear that we're yet in a multi-responsible world, a responsibility world, where others are willing to step up on issues that, at least from a U.S. perspective, are of common concern and common interest. There's a, this concern that folks haven't quite figured it out in the emerging world. There is also the lack of coherence of a positive agenda from the global south, if you will. Uh, in the Americas, you see this in a lot. I mean, Salah, everybody loves to talk about CELAC. I always send people to read the declarations that come out of CELAC meetings um, to see, and, and, and diplomatic declarations can be of lesser and greater importance and greater and lesser seriousness. Um, most CELAC declarations are about two topics, uh, one of which more or less just disappeared. One is criticizing U.S. policy towards Cuba, uh, and that was before December 17th of last year. Uh, and the other is a topic near and dear to folks um, in this city, uh, the Falkland Islands, uh, under a different name, obviously, in the Salak declarations. Uh, it, 
there's, there's not yet a coherent agenda. Drugs is a separate issue, and we can get to that. Um, I'm going to skip over to my provocation because I'm 30 seconds from my own end time here. And that is that President Obama is more open to this global reality than just about anybody else you find in the body politic of the United States. Part of that is because of who he is, literally. He was born into a global family, quite literally. He has family spread out all over the world. He spent formative years in a developing country in Indonesia that were important to shaping who he is. He has an appreciation, I think, of the limits of power. Uh, Everybody should read Moises Naim's book, obviously, on this topic. uh, But he also understands and perhaps is more comfortable, certainly, than the body politic in the United States is with the limits of U.S. power. Uh, That has created a real opportunity for merging powers. There have been the embrace of the G20, the embrace by the president of the reform of the Bretton Woods institutions, although our Congress lags desperately behind in making that a reality, uh, again, because of the mentality um, that limits people's ability to understand how the world is today and how it will be moving forward. Uh, In the Americas, the openness to the drug debate is an acceptance of a new way of doing business in the Americas, right? We, we, We went to Cartagena, Uh, three years ago for the Summit of the Americas. Traditionally, the United States president wouldn't have shown up, even with that much noise in the system of leaders in the region talking about a need to rethink this issue. And the message from the U.S. would have been, thou shalt not talk about this. That was not at all the message that President Obama took to that meeting or that we took in preparation to that meeting. Our, our, Our view was, let's have the debate. We may have a different view as to where that debate should come down, but we're more than happy to have the debate. Um, So I think that there are bunches of other examples of this sort of openness to um, new formations. At the 2009 Summit of the Americas that I had the privilege of of attending and participating in the preparation for President Obama, we made a really clear point of meeting with the countries of UNASUR as the countries of UNASUR. Um, Famously, President Chavez gave President Obama a book at the top of that meeting, which is the only thing everybody remembers about that meeting. Um, But it was a very deliberate act on our part to say, look, we're fine. We don't see these sub-regional and and affiliations and organizations as some sort of threat to the United States. Um, Perhaps they are vehicles that we can cooperate more effectively with one another. Um, Perhaps they are not, but... We, the United States, or the Obama administration, are not going to be the impediment to that cooperation. Others may be, and have been, in the Americas, um, but this openness to this new dynamic is real. Uh, and I think the, there's two years left to take uh, advantage of that in the sense of continuing the evolution of global institutions and the global way of, new global way of doing business. Because regardless of the outcome of the 2016 presidential election in the United States, the next president of the United States will not be as inherently comfortable with this dynamic as is President Obama. Um, And that is true, again, regardless of the partisan outcome of that election. Um, Because if you look at the players on the Republican side, you look at the players on the Democratic side, they all have a worldview that is not as comfortable with the emergence of global of new powers 
um, and that new power dynamic in international relations. I will stop there. Thank you. <clears throat>
And suddenly they create a new thing called the UNASUR, only for South American countries in which there are no observers. It's what takes Mexico to increase the size of the group of the Rio group, including Cuba and the Caribbean, and Brazil to create this, which is called the CELAC. So I would say that the CELAC is just a, a tie between Mexico and Brazil <laughs> in this contest which doesn't really play a big role, I agree with that. But it's important to understand that, that at the same time, third problem I wanted to tell, tell down there, that actually these things happen also in historic moments in the Latin America, in which Latin America are not satisfied with the way they have relations with the North. It happened in the 70s, at the end of the 70s, at the beginning of the... Yeah, it happened that in, the, in, the, in the 70s with the creation of the CELA. There's something called the CELA. This is just to to point to what, to what uh, Didier Operti said about uh, the, the accumulation of organizations, there is something called the CELA, the Economic System for Latin America, that was create, created in the 70s, that was, that was quite important during the 80s, and that includes exactly the same member countries as the CELAC. So nobody really understands why they had to create a CELAC, because it, it, it existed, and by the way, it's cities in Caracas, so it's really... It was easy to turn it into some kind of a secretariat of these 33 countries. No, but, uh, so, so, but that happened in a moment in which they, they were in the moment of uh, 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 benign neglect and all these things. In this case, it didn't happen that way. But I think then that there was a big moment. I mean, if, if, even though these things happened much before the, 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 the election of President Obama, or a little before, after the, the election of President Obama, and after the... The, the, the summit of, of Trinidad and Tobago, that didn't matter anymore. Because the president went there and said, I want to make policy with you and not policy for you. And that happened in the Cuba matter, for the, 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 the lifting of sanctions against Cuba. Then it happened on the Honduras coup. And then it stopped happening. And that's where the the summits of the CELAC again rose and all that started because actually there was the, that, was, that was the way it was seen. I'm not saying exactly as it was. Probably as Secretary of the OAS, I can say more things. But my impression is there is a certain breaking point between the very dynamic few, initial years of President Obama, while well, you were there, by the way, and what happened later in which actually uh, the U.S. seemed to be looking to other places in the world, in the world and not to Latin America. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We'll have a few opportunities to, to add or uh, yeah. Um, I have a question for Dan. If you could uh, elaborate a little more in the issue of U.S.-Cuba and how do you think this is going to development in the next months and years? and the implications for the relation of U.S. with Latin America. Okay, good. Let's, let's start. There was a, a general question to the group. Let's start with that. We'll go from this end there. And then we'll go to the next uh, issue after that. So start, start from this. Uh, from, sorry. The bill, yeah, but I'd like to start on this end here. No. Yeah. If you want, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. There, there was that interesting question about uh, declining U.S. hegemony and what will be the new structure. In fact, uh, if I understand your question was more on the peace and security side. 
On that, we have a whole session, I think, after lunch. So I'm sure it will be discussed at great length. But I'd like to say one or two things. One is uh, this uh, question of uh, U.S. power declining. Uh, I am not one uh, who is totally convinced by that, and there are many. And uh, it is only in relative terms, in the sense that since other powers are rising, and U.S. is not rising from the level it is, so it appears as if there is a decline in U.S. power. But in many ways, in fact, U.S. is bound, uh, bouncing back with its economy, and on top of that, oil prices are dropping, the stale, uh, shale oil revolution, etc., etc. And U.S. economy is very resilient. So uh, it is uh, very premature to write off U.S. Now, even if one accepts that uh, there is a decline in U.S. power globally, the question remains that will it lead to a total collapse of the world order that U.S. has created? That's a totally different question. US, U.S. may decline in power, but the world order created by U.S. after the Second World War may continue in some modified form. Why I say that is because even countries clamoring for greater responsibility, global responsibility, including BRICS and other emerging powers, they have benefited greatly from the globalization and from the existing world order. You cannot deny that. And it may not be in anybody's interest to have a total collapse of the system. So it may be that the same order is continued, but with participation from other countries. Now, there the question comes, what is the kind of participation? There, there is no doubt that uh, there needs uh, very substantial reforms in the international organizations. Even a very strong uh, realpolitik uh, believer like Henry Kissinger, in his latest book, World Order, he has said that international organizations, if they have to be effective, there are two aspects to this. One is the legitimacy and the other is the power. And both are important. If the organization is very powerful but it doesn't have legitimacy, it will unravel sooner or later. Or if it is very legitimate but it has no power, probably like the UN General Assembly, then it will have very nice intentions, but it won't be able to implement. So that fine balance is what may be needed in taking the new kind of responsibility by the emerging powers. Now, there is a last point I would like to make. If such a group wants to participate and be a part of the global governance system, uh, there has to be naturally leadership sharing. But the status quo powers are saying that before there is leadership sharing, there should be responsibility or burden sharing. Now it's a, really a question of the chicken and the egg, which comes first. The emerging countries are saying that unless we are given more powers, we won't take on the responsibilities. And the others are saying first you take on the responsibilities, then we will give you more power. So it is a very ticklish question. Let me let me briefly respond to to your questions, and uh, uh, I think the uh, the key is not the power the power shift the power shift is, this is a very traditional and a very western centric uh, theoretical uh, argument about the power shift the power changing the patterns and the substances change change and. Uh, um, I think the key is not about this. The key is about how to manage 
how to manage such changes. And uh, now, and uh, and China and offers and the so-called and the, the new ways or new thinkings and the, in terms of the managing security challenges and the economic challenges. The, and the, so, and the, but, but and the traditional ways such as multilateralism, the old multilateralism, old international institutions, and the regional arrangements, regionalism, and the not 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 enough, not not enough, not good enough to manage the new challenges. And uh, uh, you know, and the, and the now, and the, and the, and the China want to renovate, innovate, innovate, you know, such things. And uh, so, and uh, I think, and uh, and uh, we are now talking about the rise and rise of Asia, rise India, rise China, rise of uh, Mexico, rise of Brazil, and other emerging powers. This is not enough. This is not a solution. And uh, we needed to talk about uh, and uh, how to uh, uh, how to innovate the existing solutions and uh, to create the new solutions. And the new solutions, and now the President Xi Jinping and offers the Yellow Yidai, and the One Belt, and the One Road, and the so-called, and uses the Silk Road, Silk Road metaphor to promote global and regional integration and the network. And China would like to contribute to global public goods, not public bans. But the United States don't, and, uh, and some in the United States don't, and uh, oh, China uh, challenges the existing order, challenges America's leadership. And uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, this 10 years ago, and uh, Robert Zolik, and the Deputy Secretary of State of the United States, and there the governor, the president of the World Bank, and uh, proposed China should be a responsible stakeholder. But uh, 10 years later, China seemingly looking like a responsible stakeholder to contribute international public goods. But the question, the old question emerges, and China challenges the existing order. So the order issue, this is so political, so political, so ideological. And I don't think and we still use the old ways, old means, and to solve the new challenges. We need the new ones. But uh, what's new, we don't know. As I have said, and uh, China, the Ch- Chinese proposals, a new framework to manage relations with the with United States, with Asian countries, with other emerging countries. You know, BRICS, this is a new framework. India proposed, oh, and the BRICS banks should be called the new development bank. But uh, what is the new development? And uh, we, we know very little about the new. So this is a challenge. This is a challenge. This is a yes, geopolitical, geoeconomic change, 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 so many changes. But we still deliver offers very little solutions and a new source. This is my response to the question. Thank you. You wanted to add comment and add sí. to the case. Brevemente, two puntualizaciones. Si Cuba regresa a la OEA, tiene que hacerse parte de la Carta Democrática Interamericana. No puede ignorar que el 11 de septiembre del 2001, en Lima, en el mismo momento en que se producía el ataque a las Torres Gemelas, 
se firmaba la Carta Democrática Interamericana. Para ser miembro de la OEA hay que tener un sistema político democrático. Primera cuestión que creo que hay que tomar en cuenta. No es un proceso automático, es un proceso condicionado. Y una pequeña puntualización más. Cuando hablamos del multilateralismo, hablamos del multilateralismo de los estados y nos olvidamos de uno muy importante al que yo tenía destinada varias páginas en mi, en mi preparación, el multilateralismo privado, el de las cadenas de valor, el de las cadenas de producción, que se produce naturalmente, que surge sin necesidad de ninguna gestión diplomática o política o institucional. Surge por la fuerza de un sistema de producción internacionalizado, multilateral per se. En una economía globalizada es natural que en un lugar se diseñe, en otro se construya la pieza, en otro se integre esa pieza a un automóvil y que ese automóvil sea distribuido en el mundo bajo una marca determinada por los dealers que representan la marca. Ese es el mundo real. Y esa es una parte de la respuesta a la pregunta de qué se puede hacer para cambiar el multilateralismo ineficiente. Darle ingreso en las organizaciones internacionales con un sentido realista, porque ya no está solo en juego la paz y la seguridad, sino que está en juego el progreso, darle injerencia, pero con mayores poderes y competencia a los organismos de integración privada o público-privada. Ahí hay una línea de reforma, de revisión razonable de los instrumentos creados a mitad del siglo XIX, del siglo XX, perdón. Ahí hay una línea de aproximación razonable. Yo hubiera querido hablar de esto, pero no tuve tiempo. En todo caso, lo dejo para seguir pensando. En estas cosas nunca se agota el pensamiento en un solo acto. Perdón por el tiempo. Gracias. Thank you. So I'm actually going to go to the, the specific U.S.-Cuba question that I was asked, if, if that's okay with the moderator. Um, <clears throat> I think you're going to see a number of things. In three hours you will see the publication in the United States in the U.S. Federal Register of the new set of regulations that implements the vast majority of what the President announced uh, back on December 17th. Um, so very new uh, regime for travel between the United States and Cuba, uh, for investment in telecom telecommunications infrastructure, uh, making the people-to-people -people level interaction and making commercial interaction, and I use that word very advisedly, as normal as it can be under United States law. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Under United States law, the embargo, the core economic sanctions that the United States has against the Cuban state are a function of law today. They're not a function of something that the President of the United States can, can get, get rid of uh, from one day to the next through executive action. Um, he has now gotten rid of, in three hours, they will have gotten rid of everything they can get rid of um, by executive action. Uh, next week, you will see the Assistant Secretary of State, um, the first, the highest ranking U.S. government official to visit Havana uh, since before the Cuban Revolution, um, go for migration talks, but more importantly, for talks about the 
reestablishment of diplomatic relations, or the formalization of that process. Um, so you will see all of those things proceed apace. Um, I think before too long, the sign on the door outside what was the U.S. Embassy in Havana will once again read U.S. Embassy and not the interest section under the Swiss Embassy. Uh, and the same will be true in Washington. They'll change the signs on the Cuban intersection, which is in the very same building that the Cuban embassy was in uh, before diplomatic relations were broken. So this notion advanced by people like Senator Marco Rubio that, you know, that they will prevent the funding of an embassy um, shows a remarkable lack of knowledge um, by a member of the United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee as to how that works. The U.S. has if not the largest, probably the second largest diplomatic mission in Havana today um, in the form of the intersection with over 300 people working in it. Um, and so, again, it's, they'll change the name on the door. Um, there will be complications in getting an ambassador confirmed to that job. Um, I think two things that – it may not be as complicated as people have said because you will find people like Senator Rubio and Senator Menendez and others who are trying to resist this change. Um, they will find themselves in the awkward position of – and the White House has already pointed this out – of having voted to confirm U.S. ambassadors to, say, China uh, and other places that aren't exactly paradigms of democratic order. Uh, and their, their argument for treating Cuba differently will not resonate the way it did. One of the things that, re that is important to, to, to keep in mind is what happened on December 17th um, in the announcements that were made changed the conversation about Cuba and the United States, the political conversation, in a fundamental way. The Cuba conversation has always been a very narrow conversation. It's been a very narrow conversation and therefore was um, prone to being controlled by folks who believed very firmly in their views, um, but they didn't have to be very large in number. The conversation today is this conversation. And that narrow band can no longer control the nature of the conversation. Um, I think you will see because there's, there's perceived economic opportunities, which, quite frankly, I don't see, right? Cuba is a wildly dysfunctional small economy, um, and it's wildly dysfunctional not because of U.S. policy but because of Cuban economic policy. Um, so the economic opportunities are – the commercial opportunities are small, but those sectors that have or see that possibility will now start pressing on Congress to change U.S. law. So you've kind of fundamentally changed I think a very important thing, though, to watch in the dynamic between the U.S., Cuba, and the U.S. and the region is whether voices in the region, elected leaders in the region, find the opportunity and perhaps even a little bit of courage to start speaking about the importance of human rights and, dem and democracy and civil society in Cuba. The number of times I was told as a U.S. government official behind closed doors by friends and neighbors, very good friends and very good neighbors, that they couldn't raise those topics because of U.S. policy towards Cuba, right? They, they, it was impossible to, which was a bogus argument as far as I'm concerned, before the U.S. changed its policy. But now that the U.S. has done what it's done, there is a lot of expectation at very senior levels of the United States government that there will be someone willing to step up on it. If folks don't do that and they have the perfect opportunity, everybody's going to get together in April in Panama 
uh, at the next Summit of the Americas, President Obama's third and final Summit of the Americas. Um, if they don't do that, I think they'll have missed a ginormous opportunity to continue this evolution to real partnership in the Americas, to really doing things together. Right? That was a that was a theme from candidate Obama's May 2008 speech on the Americas, um, given in Miami, um, all the way through to December 17, 2014. Um, this is a real opportunity to do things together. Um, I, I am cautiously, I'm not even cautious, I, I'm cautiously pessimistic, I guess is the wrong way, is the right way. To, I, I'm skeptical that the region's going to step up. Um, hopefully they will. Good. Okay, we have time for one or two more questions. Gentleman here, is there anyone else uh, has an issue? And the gentleman at the back. Okay, uh, I'm going to talk in Spanish. Eh, mi nombre es Juan Pablo Marín, estudiante del Máster de Gerencia Pública y Gobierno en el SE y presidente de la Sociedad Colombiana de LSE. Soy un convencido de la idea del multi, multilateral organizations y una de las frases que se dijo acá es esto es el, el tema de relaciones internacionales es a largo plazo y en consecuencia debe haber relevos generacionales y formación de personas que estén metidas en la idea. Me tocó esperar casi toda una vida académica y profesional para un evento como esto en el ESE. Veo que hay un divorcio muy grande entre la academia en Latinoamérica y los organismos cualesquiera sean estos. Me gustaría escuchar de los panelistas si coinciden con esa idea y si sí, qué acciones específicas podemos emprender nosotros los estudiantes y las organizaciones para que haya una posibilidad de continuar con la posta para llegar a esa meta. Esa es la pregunta. Thank you. I'm Alex Mejia, I'm a program director with the United Nations based in Geneva. Uh, and my question is very specific about the part of multilateralism that the UN is supposed to task. I very much agree with this uh, uh, comment from the ambassador that you have to have not only legitimacy that we all believe that the United Nations has, but also power that we, most of us will agree is not the best scenario within the UN. So specifically within this context, this transition between the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals uh, to happen in September, in a few months, is this something that will be feasible? How will you see if any of the panelists can address how he sees this transition? I will appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Shall we start on this sure. end? And we'll um, uh, just very briefly on that, one of the things that I glided over um, 
in the level of opportunities. I think post-2015 development goals are an enormous opportunity uh, for real cooperation between the emerged and the emerging world uh, powers, uh, if, if you want to use those terms. Uh, are folks up to the task? Will they get there by September? Uh, unclear. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's profoundly unclear right now. Um, I think it will, it's important um, that pressure be maintained um, through civil society, through academics, through political processes in all of the key places um, to make sure we get to a meaningful set of achievable development goal, post-2015 uh, development goals, um, where the UN can and should play an important role going forward. Um, también quiero comentar sobre la pregunta de qué pueden hacer los estudiantes sobre estos temas. Y, y, y creo que la academia aquí, y, y también hay un problema de la academia en los Estados Unidos sobre Latinoamérica también, que quiero comentar un segundo, que la academia sobre Latinoamérica en los Estados Unidos está por lo menos 20 años retrasada. Y está creando gente y está creando más académicos que francamente no están viviendo en la realidad que existe en la región, que no entienden la realidad de la región y que vienen de un, de un momento en la historia, están más o menos congelados en un momento de la historia, de mucha división ideológica, de francamente del mismo problema que yo hablé sobre, sobre el élite político y política pública estadounidense, están demasiado enfocados en esa realidad. Creo que hay dos maneras de superar eso y, y también trabajar los temas que, que mencionó. Uno son los intercambios académicos. Uno es que estudiantes salgan de sus países, ya lo has, ya lo has hecho, uh, salgan de sus países a educarse, pero en ambas direcciones. El presidente Obama ha impulsado, yo, yo estaba trabajando con él cuando lo empezamos, una meta para aumentar los intercambios educativos entre los Estados Unidos y los demás países de las Américas, y digo los demás porque los Estados Unidos es un país de las Américas, tiene la, la tercera población hispana en el mundo, la tercera economía hispana en el mundo, que estudiantes, estudiantes de los Estados Unidos vayan a la región para estudiar y que de la región vengan a los Estados Unidos a estudiar. Corto plazo, mediano plazo, largo plazo, eso francamente va a cambiar la academia, y obviamente va a cambiar la experiencia de esos estudiantes. Creo que eso es lo más clave de esto. Y francamente los gobiernos de la región se están dando cuenta de eso. Están empezando a impulsar proyectos similares. Lo hemos visto en Brasil, lo hemos visto en México, lo hemos visto en Colombia. Donde están poniendo recursos del Estado para promover esas, esos intercambios que son súper importantes para cambiar no solamente las vidas de esos estudiantes, sino también la academia en sí, y creo que esos estudiantes cuando vuelven a sus países tienen una responsabilidad profunda de seguir impulsando eso, de seguir, de seguir diciendo el cambio que se hizo y, 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 y haciendo todo lo posible para capacitar las instituciones en ambas direcciones para continuar esos intercambios. You had the first word, now you have the last word. <laughs> I, I'm flattered. <laughs> uh, there was a very good question on the Millennium Development Goals. Yes, it's of great concern to everyone that uh, very, few, very little time is left, a few months more. And uh, there, of course, you know and all of you know what is the main uh, issue today. If, uh, it's very complex, but if you want to simplify it, it's as simple as this. 
that most of the developing countries want development to be the main pillar of the new sustainable development goals, whereas there are pressures from business and other corporate sector to make it more market-oriented. So this is a question that still has to be decided. The second thing is that the last draft that's being discussed, the SDGs, uh, have been, uh, uh, it's a huge list of some 69 goals, which makes it very unwieldy. So there are uh, opinions that this has to be cut down drastically. But one good thing about the Sustainable Development Goals discussion is that unlike the Millennium Development Goals, in this process, there is active participation from civil societies and the NGOs, which is absolutely essential because it's not even enough if recognized civil societies and NGOs participate, but the actual share, uh, stakeholders, that is people, the poorest of the poor who will be affected by this, will also have to have a say in the final thing. Otherwise, it will not be effective. And the last point I want to make is uh, the problem is uh, in all these things, the uh, United Nations and other organizations are working in separate silos. But we should realize that climate talks, sustainable development goals, and the so-called disaster risk reduction talks, which are supposed to be held in Sendai in Japan, these are all interrelated. But there is no coordination between them. Each one looks at the problem by itself. But actually, there should be a comprehensive approach to all these three. That is sustainable development, climate change, and disaster risk reduction. Then only we will have some beneficial results. I spoke too soon. One yeah. additional comment. And the additional comment about the Millennium Development Goals, uh, very quick. And uh, uh, China, China is now increasing, increasing development, development assistance, official, official development assistances, and uh, the new programs, so many new programs, and uh, unilaterally, and uh, you know very well, and uh, uh, officially. Such things and how to be regarded as a part of Chinese contribution to development goals. I don't know, and you you may know, and how to harmonize and between China, China and uh, and the international community, international institutions, and uh, the last and potentially, and if China liberates the the civil society. Uh, the role Chinese civil, civil China-based civil societies uh, in providing, in offering, in giving development goals. You know, and uh, I think and and uh, so many Chinese civil societies can play larger roles in Africa, in Latin America, and elsewhere, Asia, South Pacific Islands. Okay, the potential is great, so great. If I wanted to uh, ask that we uh, thank the speakers for wonderful contributions and indeed for their patience for having me uh, keep <laughs> constrain the time that they could present. So thank you very much.